Hi, Elena. Hello. Hello. Hopefully you can hear me. Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, good, because I always enter Zoom calls like as chaotically as humanly possible. Is there any other way? I don't think there is, to be honest. No. My, my, my almost four-year-old boy just went upstairs, so he yeah. hopefully will stay up there with mom for a little bit. So I get <laughs> we're I both we're, we're both dads of young boys, so um, yeah, we we know that we can relate to you in that regard. Yes, in fact, my youngest, who just turned four actually in September, oh. had a complete meltdown about oh, me coming back upstairs. So I yep. came here like ready to cry. I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go. And then I'm like, Zoom isn't going to work. It's not going to connect. Like, oh, uh, no. At any point, if something comes up, a kid from anyone's view. <laughs> Dogs fine. on my end. Yeah. So, do you, too, so. Yep. Do, you any, do you have any questions before we? I don't mean to like rush, but I, uh, I don't know. Um, I just, uh, my kids, uh, I don't kids watch me too. <laughs> so. time, mom. Sorry. I Sorry. relate so hard to this. Yep. <laughs> Welcome to Deadhead Space. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my friend, Brennan LaFaro. Say hello, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today we uh, unfortunately don't have Candice Nola with us. She will be back next week. Um, we do have a probably like hands down the biggest podcast we've ever had to date. Your show's huge. It's Elena <laughs> Urquhart and your book's awesome. Hello. So let, let's just get a big high from you. <laughs> thank you so much that was a great introduction absolutely <laughs> yeah um so i i was diving into some of your earlier works but before we talk about that the earlier episodes um i would like to know what got you into horror because we we know you're you're a horror nerd like us oh yeah i love horror i love anything scary and it kind of all started with real scary stories to tell in the dark like the books the original ones mm -hmm. it was the drawings first of all were the thing that i remember flipping through and just be like the stephen gamble drawings of course yeah. and i just remember looking at them and being like these are the most horrifying nightmarish images i've ever like the way they drip and stuff i just immediately i was like oh i love this feeling like it was like like that that feeling of knowing you're safe, but being like the adrenaline rush and all that. I just, those books were what hooked me immediately. I was like, what else can I put my hands on that will give me this feeling? And then it yeah. went to like Spumps, of course, and like mm -hmm. Fear Street. And then it went to Stephen King later because I was like, oh, there's like a step up from this. <laughs> like, it can get even weirder than this. Like, let's go. <laughs> that That's interesting. <laughs> For me, it was R.L. Stein. Oh, and yeah. I, I didn't start like... We've talked to literally now hundreds of our peers in the mainly book horror world, um, crime as well, and other forms of dark fiction. And um, most of the cases for people in our, our, I can't talk, our age group, they're pretty much right off the bat Stephen King. Like if Stephen yeah. King's it, the movie, uh, that terrified me as a kid. But for books is R.L. Stein. Um Brennan, please jump in, sir. You know, I, I want to pick your brain on a, like a horror versus true crime thing. Because um, we've talked to some people who kind of have this, you know, they they are true crime junkies, but they're not horror fans. And, you know, maybe that's the supernatural. Maybe it's something else. But there are so many horror elements in true crime. What do you think separates the two? You know, it's... It's so funny because I used to be like, uh, I, I've always been like, I'm really fascinated by true crime. Like I was really, I have tons of books. I used to be obsessed with like, especially the forensic pathology portion of it always fascinated me, but it kind of changed when I had kids. It like got less, I got more into like more into horror in the supernatural side than I did like the true crime. But I think it's that the thing with horror is it's, it's like safe. It's you can watch it, you know, it's re it's not real. You can read it, you know, it's not real. No one has suffered here, really. You know what I mean? Like, it's one of those, like, it's I, for me, it's an easier release because you're like, okay, no one's suffered to make this. So, like, I, I can, I can do this with feeling good. I can get this, like, fun adrenaline rush. I can walk out of here. 
true crime, I think, is one of those things you have to be in the right headspace for, especially if you're consuming it properly, I think, mm. and it properly. Because if you're going into it wanting to be like entertained, it's like these are real people. This is like a real thing that happened and it's a real story and it's a real horror. So I think you have to it's that's why I think a lot of people who are into true crime are not into horror and vice versa, just because of the different mindsets you have to go into it with. I think a lot of people just either want to go with one mindset or the other and they're not they're not really into switching between. Somehow I'm able to switch between. I think kids help that a lot. <laughs> For sure. I think that could be it. Yeah. I really now, do think I, it does. As a creator of horror, as a writer now, you know that it's not entirely true that nobody suffers for it. <laughs> That's very true. I actually thought of that as I said it. I was like, I'm lying. <laughs> That's <laughs> what writers do. We lie. <laughs> That's very true. There's definitely suffering that goes in, into it, but a different kind of suffering, a beautiful suffering if you will. Hmm. <laughs> Brennan, are you going to continue this or can I jump in? Yeah, go ahead. So with, with you, like there's, there's so many questions I have. I'm not sure which one to pick first because it's a podcast or it's a true crime aspect. And I'm trying to figure out, and I wasn't able to really concisely put this how I wanted to in my notes, but like being an autopsy technician, that's not that, I feel like that's not something that you one day um, that that's not random. That's not a random choice. So I'm wondering if there's, I'm sure it's been brought up a lot. Um, where is there any question that you wish was asked you about that field, that, that job where you want to talk about, and perhaps there's someone listening that might be interested in that, that could relate to what you're, what you made say so my question is is uh is there anything that you haven't really been asked about but you would like to talk about as far as being an autopsy technician or or anything in that world yeah i would say so my becoming an autopsy technician was definitely it's, it's one of those things it's like when you're a little girl you don't want to like just you know open people up do you and i was like oh maybe they kind of did because <laughs> <laughs> again i was like super fascinated by true crime and like especially the forensic pathology version. Like I remember when I found out that that was a job, that a job was to have like somebody who has died in a brutal way to be the one to open them up and discover what happened to be able to give answers and speak for them when they can't speak. I was like, wow, what a job. Mm. And I wanted to be a full blown forensic pathologist, but I did not get through all of the schooling involved for that because I got pregnant with twins at one point and I was like, mm. you know what? But <laughs> I was able to go through the school to schooling to become an autopsy technician. And that was like just as great in, in my eyes because I got to experience so much. But I think one of the things that I like to talk about more with it is, is like kind of twofold because it's like one, how it's portrayed in like movies, TV shows, all mm. that it's so different like watching it you're just and i know that's the case with a lot of things but particularly like they always kind of show the medical examiner like an autopsy tech is like this like creep like someone you oh yeah 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 run away from i'm thinking of the exorcism of emily rose that guy was a fucking person wasn't he a rapist yeah they're always like this guy was a sick bastard he's a white straight dude too i bet that piece of shit It's a joke, people. Don't get mad at me and send emails. But it's so true. It's like the same. And it's like, I think it's, is it gone in 60 seconds? The guy like eating a sandwich over a dead body and he like puts it on the body. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Brennan's oh, saying, yeah. There's so many parts of these things that when you watch it, you're like, that's so unsanitary. You're like, that would never happen. Or, that's really disrespectful. Or like, you would never do that. But I, and what it really is, is everyone I have worked with in that space is, there because they're looking at that person as somebody's person like that that is somebody's person still we need to treat it like somebody's person we like the idea that people are kind of like callous and cold around it is not true but it there's definitely like you have to look at it like disconnecting a little bit but you have mm. to always get them as person at the same time so it's like a kind of like a tenuous connection to the person like whenever we would have somebody come in who because you know you never know when you're going to do your hair for the last time usually mm -hmm. so somebody 
come in with like really intricate hairdo or something that I was like that they had no idea that was going to be their last hairstyle. Oh shit. So I never, <laughs> it's like a scary thought. So mm. when we would have to take out, we would have to do a brain removal a lot of the times so they could do research about that. And when you take it off, you have to cut across the back of the person's head. Mm. And a lot of that would mean cutting through their hair. So we would always try to part their hair in a way that we would cut, not chop the hair off and not ruin Whoa. the hair. And it was like little things like that, that we would try to like, we would try to cut around a tattoo, like to not, you know, cut open a tattoo through the middle or something like that. It's yeah. like Holy shit. people take the time with loved ones. Like, so I feel like people need to know that like their loved ones are being cared for. The people who work in those places usually are very careful to make sure that everything that makes that person a person is still intact at the end of it. That's beautiful. That really is. That goes back to you. <laughs> no, like, I wouldn't think of that. If I'm writing a scene about that sort of thing, I that would never cross my mind unless I hopefully stumbled upon it on, on like research. Um, mm -hmm. That's really fascinating. So, I, Brent, I got one more question and then you jump in, buddy. Um, it, maybe not even specifically the book that your first book that's out, but like with writing, when you have time, when you write fiction, um, does doing that job, especially with the stuff you write, does doing that job really help you um, kind of feel like you can pull readers in a lot? I'm not going to, I don't know how to ask this without it sounding like, can you do it better? Um, does it, <laughs> <laughs> does it heighten, I guess, your ability to have focal points in your details? I don't know how else to word that without saying, can, would it make you better than someone that doesn't? I don't know how else to word it. So <laughs> I hope you have an answer for that. That was a terrible question. <laughs> I you tried, though. I did. <laughs> I don't think it, it makes me any better by any stretch of the imagination, but maybe it just gives me like a different viewpoint from it because I think I've seen because I've I've seen all the sides of it a little bit like being in that room with like a dead body and and opening someone up is just like a very unique and kind of like surreal experience like the first time and honestly like every time I would do it I'd be like wow that's just like the inside of that person it's just like really wild and also seeing family members and like people who loved that person like I've seen that side of it I've seen the breakdown that happens i've seen the emotions that go into it i've seen the red tape that goes into it you know just getting that body from the scene to the funeral home to the morgue and back through the whole process i think just seeing that has at least given me like an easier path to writing certain scenes mm. but yeah. I, think, I don't think i'm necessarily like can do it better i think it's just probably a little less of a heavy lift for me maybe <laughs> But on the flip side of the same idea, do you feel like having all that experience and knowing the gritty details makes it difficult to uh, write a scene that maintains like a, a breakneck pacing? Yeah, I can definitely relate to that hard because <laughs> you want to make it like, you know, like, like you said, you want the pacing there, but you all like I'm in my head. I'm like, you can't skip over this one part or you can't skip over this one detail. But I think what helps is there's so many strange things during an autopsy that happens that I think it's just, it helps because it kind of keeps you, it, it kind of helps with the pacing a little bit because it gives you a little bit of a bump where you're like, what did you just say? Like, what did you do? So it kind of gives you a moment to be like, woo. Because <laughs> like, like we, we would use like when we would remove the rib cage, because you have to remove the chest plate to get into the abdomen and you have to break the ribs on both sides to do that. And we would use like literal hedge clippers, like from like they, like the, the orange handled ones. Like, yeah. Yeah. Straight up. <laughs> and so like little details like that, where you feel like, you know, a lot of it is like very clinical tools and very, you know, medical tools, but then there's some tools that just work better than others that are not what you would ever think you would see in that setting. So those are the little details that I can throw in that people are like, wait a second, is that real? That hedge clipper thing just made me th think of a Gabino Iglesias, his last book. Um, I don't know, Brennan, I don't know where I'm going with that. So you jump in, buddy. 
Okay. Well, you know, we kind of already have started touching on the book, so let's uh, tiptoe backward just a little bit. But with Morbid, it's very much, you know, the kind of oral storyteller tradition. And of course, you're, you know, telling real cases, but it's done in a way where over, you know, the course of a 60 to 90 minute episode, you're telling an engaging story. And I wonder how all of that prepared you to write a book. So thank you for saying that, by the way. But um, yeah, I think it actually helped immensely, I would say. Like, I've always wanted to write and I've always been writing, but I, I definitely think it helps doing that because I've seen what keeps people engaged and how to keep people engaged in a story. Because when we tell true crime stories, especially because obviously like we've done supernatural stories and just like weird science and weird history, but mostly true crime. And when we do true crime stories, it's most important to keep people engaged so that they can hear the victim's story. And that's why we've always tried to make it kind of like, we really want to tell you this tale about this victim. So you you get connected to them. You feel like you know them by the end of it. So when it when everything happens and the horrible thing happens, you can feel what we felt when we were researching it, you know? And I think that helps develop characters in fiction because with real people, they they're colorful and they they have these, you know, multiple layers. They're like they're like an onion. You just like keep peeling and you see all these different things. They have different, they have friends, they have hobbies, they have interests and aspirations. And when you're creating a character, you want the same thing. You want it to be someone that your readers care about so much that when this thing happens to them, they feel like this is someone they know and this is someone they care about and it gives them the same feeling as if it was someone real. So I think it's helped yeah. me sure in developing characters and developing stories that people can actually like relate to. Ooh, that is a solid answer. I'm thinking of uh, an episode you guys <laughs> did recently um, and I'm, I'm blanking on the Italian town, but it was the soap maker. Oh, um, I thought you were going to yeah. say the other one. Thank God. <laughs> yes. That one. Um, wild it, it was wild but what is amazing about it and i think this really ties to you know building characters that people can care about before you know the shit hits the fan um is i i think probably two-thirds of that episode was build up and there was never a dull moment you know it, you're not you know when are we going to get to the murder you're not doing that <laughs> i mean the, the the woman's early life was so horrific that it's like you're already into the horror before you really get into the horror anyway. But by the time, you know, we get to kind of the reason we're talking about this story, she's fully fleshed out. You guys have completely brought her to life and made the audience understand what she's been through that got her to this point. And if you can kind of harness that ability to just build a completely three-dimensional character and then put them through the ringer, like, I mean, that's how we write horror. Yeah. That's it. And thank you for saying that. It's, I think we also, it's helped that we've been, cause we've been doing morbid since 2018. So I think like in the beginning, we had no idea what we were doing. Like <laughs> I would not even listen to those episodes. I'm like, Oh God. But I think we've like kind of evolved so much over the years and like figured out how to tell the story, the stories like appropriately and respectfully and like really try to make sure that's, at the forefront that I think it's it's kind of gone like hand in hand with writing. It's like I've evolved in writing and doing that at the same time, like kind of parallel together. So it's like a weird experience. It's like a unique experience to have, but I'm grateful for it. <laughs> I, I was going to say my so far, my favorite episode, because I listened to older ones and the newer one uh, that I really loved is, and I might fuck up how you say this, the Torx. Torsaker witch trials. Yes, the Torshorker witch trials. That like, shit's and wild. That's the kind of stuff because we've been we've been kind of gearing a little more towards like you know a Ash likes more of to do more of like the more modern crimes, but mm. I love to like I get so fascinated with like the historical stuff. It just like started drawing me in recently, so that was one that I stumbled across, and I was like. How are we not being like taught this in school? Like I was like, wow, like this is like such a warning for like group think and like you know it it was just like whoa like it, we know all about especially coming from Massachusetts yeah yeah we know 
about the Salem witch trials. Oh shit! I didn't know you knew any. Yeah, yeah. it's cool as fuck. Nice. Yeah. Sorry, I'm I'm fanboying. I'm shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't. You don't hear about these other instances. Like I had no idea that witch trials were so like in Scotland and I didn't either for Europe. How devastating they were. Like you know, it's similar to and even on a grander scale than the Salem witch trials. So after reading that one, I was like, I don't know how we didn't know. And I and a lot of people said that. They were like, how have I never heard of this? I was like, I don't know. I guess it's in Sweden. So they were like, you don't need to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, talking about Massachusetts and like history, like Thanksgiving, I'm sure people are like, well, yeah, I'm sure it was fucked up. But there, there was slaughter right before. And then if you're going to go a little bit, a few more years ahead of that, I believe it was uh, King Philip's War was just oh, for yeah. those that might be interested is... um per capita was more bloody than the civil war. So that, that alone should say like, wow, that's fucking crazy. Unbelievable. I, I'm pretty sure it wasn't even a page worth in, yeah. in my tech. I grew up in Bridgewater, Massachusetts, and that's 30 minutes away from Plymouth. Oh my God. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> You're like, what is going on? We took field trips to Plymouth plantation. Yeah, nope. No did. King Philip's war. What? No, I didn't know about it until we covered the Bridgewater Triangle. And yes, we're thank like, you for doing that. Bridgewater Triangle vicinity in there. Yeah. And I knew something about it, but like that, I went, I got like sucked into that. Cause I was like, how are we not all well versed on this and like learning lessons from it? Like, what is going on? There's a podcast. I don't know. I just found out about it called, I think it's just Bridgewater. It's about, uh, it's a fictional podcast scripted series With Aaron Hanky. yeah well wheaton's in it too i love that guy. yeah that's a great one <laughs> it's so weird because for when we started i can relate to what you're saying we started in 2020 we didn't really have an introduction or not nothing was like streamlined and every year we learn more and we're only going on our fourth year this april but um it in the beginning i remember one of the first episodes we were talking to this guy in andy call from was he England? Australia? Australia. No, he's yeah. Australian. And oh, we, wow. I don't know why, but we talked about the Bridgewater Triangle and Brennan didn't know about it at the time. And he lives in that area too. I was like, this is crazy. Yeah. Still oh embarrassed God. about that. Yeah. <laughs> That's fun. That's it, a, you could go for days on the Bridgewater Triangle topic. I mean, it's, it's really strange. It, it, the whole thing's just weird. I've lived there. Well, I live in South Jersey now, but like for most of my life, I lived there and I, I never saw anything weird. I'm pretty upset about it. <laughs> although there was i didn't see this this oh. is terrible this is a true crime but um uh so for people that aren't from the area there's this uh there's this uh t-line uh train line and it runs through bridgewater and there was a body wrapped in like cellophane uh plastic wrap or whatever burnt inside and that like i grew up there that's a small town it's really fucked up to think about that because sometimes yeah. my wife my wife will be like what of the lock the not overnight, but sometimes we'll have to lock the door. I'm like, that is what everyone who is attacked by a serial killer or in ah. a town says that <laughs> at all times. My so, husband will do that. He'll be like, Oh, it's like well, you know, it's fine. I'm like, Are you, have you what? Like, have you lived with me? <laughs> so like four blocks over here. Yeah, good. <laughs> you you and Ashley are are clearly best friends. What <laughs> I'm sure you've been asked this before, but like Brent, Brennan and me, like I didn't know him until I moved to South Jersey. And like years later, me, I, I, I was running this review website for like horror books and crime books and whatnot. And we came across each other then. And then we, I started a podcast and he joined and um, now we're best friends. And it's really fun doing a podcast. Like if I did this, I've told him there are people, you don't have to go into details. There are people for some reason that just are dicks like they might be fellow writers or whatever absolutely you're not bothering anyone but if i was doing this by myself i don't know if i could have survived everything i would i might have said fuck it and there <laughs> there were many times where i could have had that but we are nowhere nearly as successful and you might disagree cuz you're really nice we are not nearly as successful by any stretch in any dream as your show. So I'm wondering 
how it feels to start a podcast with someone you love so dearly and you have a, a growing fan base that doesn't seem to be stopping anytime soon and you're tell me if I'm speaking out of Turner to cut this and you're making a good living off of it how, how that's like my dream to do with Brennan and our friend Candace how's it feel what do you want to do you want to talk about any of that because I would love to hear yeah. any of it. oh yeah that's Ash and I so Ash is technically my niece she's 10 years younger than me but we I didn't know that we grew we grew up as sisters essentially hmm. like that's basically we grew up in the same house and so we've I mean, I've like she's gonna kill me, but I've changed her diapers. Like I'm literally Aww, that's years between us. And so like insane. we are very bonded. And the amount of times that we will look at each other when like anything goes like awry or somebody's mean or something happens, we will look at each other and just be like, Thank goodness for you. Like we're always just like, Thank goodness I'm doing this with you. Like because we say it all the time. Like, I don't think I could weather everything without her. I really in fact I know I couldn't. And but the other thing that we do, and I think that hopefully more people will will do this like for a long time because I see people doing it. It makes me happy is one just like you have to be grateful. Like if, when it becomes like normal, like when people like when people will see us out or something and we'll come up and want a picture, it is never normal or just like, oh, OK, this is just a day like, you know, like that's. It's always shocking and it should always be shocking. I feel like if it ever gets to a point where somebody's like, oh, this is just how it should be in my life. It's like, that's a problem and you need to like take a seat. <laughs> like, you know? Yes. And, uh, also, like bring other people up with you. Like, I never understand like the competitiveness that I, I have seen before where it's like, there's room up for everybody up here. Like, it's like rise everybody with you if you see a cool podcast or you see a cool show or a good book or something like shout them out like get people's eyes or ears or whatever have you get everything on them and i love seeing people do that and ash and i try to do that as much as we can like you know we'll do it with like podcasts or tiktokers or whatever because we're just like we would have you know we had a, like people do that for us when we were coming up and i just think it's like a good thing to do like pay it forward and I feel like some people don't. And it's like, I don't understand the mentality of like, we have to step on other people to stay on top kind of thing. It's like, no, bring mm. everybody to like a big party, like bring, bring everybody up here. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm a nineties kid. So like growing up and yeah. my dad was into Martin Scorsese, which got me into it. And, and just the, for just those two examples, like they always had mostly the same people because they're friends. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I want to do that. Shit. I've always wanted to create. And I'm like, I want yeah. that. It's the best. Like, you yeah. can't ask for a better situation. That's why it's also just, like, so important to be grateful for it. Like, we're constantly, like, mm. pinching ourselves. And if something, you know, doesn't go our way, we're having, like, a shitty day or, like, you know, a podcast comes out and somebody doesn't like it, we're like, okay, like, we we should shut the hell up because we're doing something that we've wanted to do forever. So, like... We're always trying to silver line it by being like, be grateful. Yeah. Like we're very lucky. That's awesome. Yeah. I didn't jump in. <laughs> I, I just it reminds me of uh, my favorite like writing advice, and I think it absolutely applies to podcasting is you just want one hand out, you know, to collect wisdom from the people who came before you and one mm -hmm. hand behind you to help the person who's coming behind you. You know, yeah. that's how this how these industries, you know. It's basically how you become a successful person is for yeah. learning, learning from people and listening to people, but also making sure that you never get too big for your britches and you always, uh, you always help people out. Exactly. It. And it feels good. It's fun to mm -hmm. see somebody else start to get an audience because you said something about their episode on your episode. Like that's fun to watch. I'm like, hell yeah. Mm. Like <laughs> that's always like a brightener for our day. So I'm like, I, I keep telling and That's like my one thing I'm telling like all new podcasters. I'm like, do it. It is so fun <laughs> to shout Absolutely. out who you think is good and try to get everybody up there with you. Cause it's a lot of fun and it'll make your job even more fun. All right. Now, are you and Ashley from Boston or is it, and you don't have to say specifically where, but cause like when I first moved to Jersey right away, people are just like, Oh, you're from Boston. No, <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. I'm a. I'm a suburban cat. 
and we're the same way. Everybody's just like, so you're from Boston, and you're like, sure, why not? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the whole the, the whole of Massachusetts is just Boston because you don't have a heavy accent. I don't think any of us do. No, every once in a while, mine pops out accidentally. Like it'll, you know, same, same here. <laughs> keep it, keep it chill. So I think yeah. I've like I've kind of like trained it a little bit. But every once in a while, Ash doesn't have as really any. Accent yeah, I can't at all. hear it. She's the one that will every once in a while be like, "Huh, you said this. <laughs> you said it weird." <laughs> my my. So my wife is from Jersey, and she can't. She has trouble understanding my parents. My dad's from uh, my dad's from Walpole. My mom's from Taunton, and. They have really thick accents. Yep. My dad they, is the same way. <laughs> um, have you heard of, and for all I know you've done, and I didn't do my homework on this specific question, but have you done uh, an episode on Tony Chop Chop Costa? We have. I oh, I got to fucking listen to that. <laughs> that was one of mine. That was a wild ride. That guy's a psycho. <laughs> it is just i mean your name is tony chop chop so that's <laughs> that'll give you the but that whole case was just a roller coaster ride and the fact that he was a parent too really bummed me out i hate that's when awful. these people are yeah it yeah um it, for just for those check out obviously morbid but um which we'll plug again uh in the show notes too but um Look, we're doing it. We're doing what you said. No, just joking. <laughs> uh, but there is this guy named Tony Chop Chop Costa, and he is—he was a serial killer in the late '60s in Truro, Cape, uh, Cape Cod. Um, and I was thinking about it because I grabbed my. Oh, it's gonna blur it out. My, oh, there you go. My Cape Cod. Cape Cod. I got the Christmas tree store, which is not a Christmas thing anymore. R.I.P. Yeah, yeah, did you really just call it the Christmas tree store? I Come did, on, dude. Man. My brain's so shit Stop right now. Your brain's in Jersey. <laughs> I'm jumping. Uh, I'm okay. I'm not gonna bitch. Um. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyways, he was he was around the area called uh, P Town, and before it was like super uh, LGBTQ oriented, it was home to hippies and flower children, and he was killing people and burying them in uh, his weed gardens in the woods. So, <laughs> it's so messed up. I. I couldn't find any more killers from Cape Cod because I had looked. I was interested. I could only find that's, him. And that's I, feel how I, like, found I feel like that can't be true. There, no. There's no way. There's got to be more. There's definitely more. There's yeah. a lot of pieces that we'll dig up because we'll kind of like we have a research assistant now to help us out, Dave, and he's like amazing. And he'll we'll like send him out and we'll be on there's just like digging through like old newspapers and stuff on newspapers.com just seeing if there's any little mention of something and you wouldn't believe the amount of cases that like i've never heard of nobody's heard of that are like the most violent awful grotesque cases that you're just like why has this what like and there's no rhyme or reason why it didn't get attention or it's not talked about i think there's just so many that there's so many we don't know about that are way worse and more horrifying than things that get 10 times the attention that's terrible yeah well, um, bless you for shining a light on them thank yeah, you seriously <laughs> before we jump into your book i actually have a question from one of my friends named Kristen craddock she's seriously a huge fan of yours um Kristen wants to know would you consider doing cases that involved ongoing investigations police cover ups and allegedly wrongly accused people stuff like that so we don't like to do ongoing cases because there's just like a lot of mess involved mm -hmm. and we never want to like derail anything because we we've seen too much of that happen at some point or another. So we never want to be the cause of derailing anything or like speculating about anything that hasn't been actually, you know, put forward through the court system and come out with uh, a verdict because we just feel like that's it's been buttoned up. We know what happened. We have done some that that we believe. I think Ash actually just covered one that she thinks the wrong person was convicted for. I think it was an old one, though. I want to say it was from like the 30s or the 20s. And she was she was like, well, <laughs> it was a long time ago. So I'm just going to say I don't think that was the guy who did it. And those are the ones we'll do that are like, you know, a little wishy-washy, but new newer cases that are like. Because we get a lot of people that will ask us to cover things like, you know, 
the the Idaho college murders that just happened like cover those and we were like we're gonna let it like take its course through what needs to be done before we because we also just kind of want to like you know step back a little from like family members who are currently going through Mm. kind of grief and that kind of you know upheaval Mm. so we don't want to be any additive to that because you know you you learn through this process like how important that is to make sure you're not adding to grief so i think we'll be staying away from that stuff for now but yeah there just one more thing and then brandon please jump in with the book um maybe you guys heard about it but um the author of the lovely bones alice sebel i think that's how you say her last name she uh she had accused this man of raping her in college and i can't remember if it was a case where it was just the wrong person but it, he he was in prison for 16 years and he got out because it wasn't him and oh, wow that's what i think about with stuff like that when you were just answering the question because like i don't know how you can live with that shit on your conscience because i know like you, we're all parents that love our kids to death and yeah i'm sure that would cross all our minds like what if that was my kid you know wrongly yeah. accused absolutely and that's that's why it's I think it's just better to like when be far removed from the end of a case before we touch it. We that wanted to, to take its take its whole journey through where it needs to go, let everything settle, and then then we can tell the story again when people need to hear it again. Absolutely. Brennan. All right, yeah, we uh definitely want to make sure that we talk about the butcher and the wren. So let's go there. Um <laughs> We love to have the authors give, you know, your back cover synopsis, your elevator pitch, whatever you like, so that we don't have to uh, butcher it, so to speak, and give spoilers and just <laughs> generally mess everything up. <laughs> so I would say The Butcher and the Wren is definitely like a cat and mouse. I I would say it's like a thriller slash horror. I was, I was trying to like bend that genre a little bit when I did it because I wanted to make sure there was true horror in there. Um, It takes place in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, It's about a medical examiner, Dr. Ren Muller, who um, has a past and is on the case of a serial killer, Jeremy, who basically does like a most dangerous game scenario for some of his victims. He's very theatrical. He's very experimental. He's uh, he likes to get his hands dirty to learn things that's something he learned when he was a child and you know i would say the other main character in the story is um detective john larue he's the detective put on the case his father worked it before him and it was kind of passed down to him and i it's i wanted to make jeremy really like because and i think this maybe this comes from true crime background that We've seen that serial killers are usually not like the you know the boogeyman like they they don't look like the boogeyman like uh, that's usually and I always thought it was kind of like a bummer when serial killers are always portrayed as like this like horrifying looking human being who's like disheveled and dirty and gross because yeah that absolutely happens but a lot of the times they're luring in their victims because they look like a normal person and it's like. Yeah. So that's why it's like, so those victims aren't following this like scary looking human that you're like, why would you ever follow that person? It's like they're being charmed by a very normal looking man usually that doesn't look like what is on his inside. So that was my important thing with this. I wanted to make Jeremy someone that anybody could follow and not without a second thought. And I think the fact that he's a normalish guy, uh, I would imagine it makes the the point of view chapters from his point of view more interesting to write than, you know, weird looking dude hold up. And <laughs> um, so I because I, I, it, it is told in dual point of views. And it, it's a weird question because, you know, we, Ren is our protagonist and he's our antagonist. But was there one character you really enjoyed writing more than the other? Or, you know, what were the kind of pros and cons of jumping back and forth? So I think, so I think with Ren, she's definitely like, I would say like, she is who she has all the qualities, most of the qualities that like I aspire to, like all of her good qualities are things that I like work towards having. And then all her flaws are kind of like flaws I already have. Like I just like put my flaws on her. So 
I think writing her was like a little easier because I was just kind of like going with my own anxieties and my own flaws and then kind of writing who I aspire to be. So she and she has like a really I think she has an interesting analytical mind that can also she'll dip into that like whimsy side of like, you know, going to the tarot card reader and like being a little little like thrown off from it so she can tap into both sides, which was fun to write. But I would say Jeremy is like a little freer to write because he he doesn't have boundaries. So it's Mm. like you can kind of just open the gates of your own mind and just let it all spill out with him because nothing's really off the table. And I think I took, you know, bits and pieces of like the biggest monsters I could ever dream of and made him all of that together. And I think it just kind of was, I think writing his scenes are more of like an exercise of creativity because it's like, how far can I push this kind of thing without reeling it back? So they're equally fun to write, but I think Jeremy is a little more like free to write. An exercise in creativity. I love that. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Now, with with you being a a Bostonian or, you know, the area anyways, what compelled you to put it in New Orleans? Because that that it's that's not just random. It's the setting is a big part of the story. That's important. Oh, yeah, that's I have always been in love with New Orleans and I like I, I got to go and see it. It's it's exactly how beautiful as I imagined it in my own head. And it's it's always been a place like an interview with a vampire in true detective in true blood. Those three things. I love those three, three things. So and to me in those Louisiana and New Orleans, especially was a character. And without it, I think they would have been so different and it would have given me a different feel. And I don't even know how I would have liked them as much, like especially true detective that first season Louisiana I mean you like because I I couldn't really like I didn't get into it as much when they moved it out of Louisiana because it was just like something about that landscape and that vibe and like all the different nuances of that place and New Orleans especially how it like hangs in this place between like super lively but like super spooky and like lots of stuff to do with death and like their graveyards are so beautiful and interesting and unique. And there's like, it's, it's such a dichotomy in and of itself of like the most vibrant, bright life you could ever imagine. And also this like spooky wrapped up in death kind of side to it as well. So I think it was just like, I don't know where else you can find that like so vibrantly and then New Orleans, Louisiana. So that was, I always knew that was the place. And when I first thought of the idea for this book, it was because it started out from a nightmare that I had. And it was when I was pregnant with my twins actually. And I had these weird vibrant nightmares that I like couldn't decipher. And so it was the dream was I was running from someone and there was music blasting. I couldn't figure out from where, and it was dark and gross. And I felt like I was running through a swamp. Like that was what it felt like. I couldn't move that fast. Everything felt soggy. And so when I woke up and I was trying to figure out where I was. I was like, I bet I was in like the bayou. I was like, that's where it was. Like, that's what it felt like. And that's what I wrote down. And that was, I was like, okay, I have to set it there. Like there's no choice now. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Go ahead, Brandon. Sorry. I was going to say that's, that's what occurred to me too, is like, if you're fleeing for your life, like if you're in the woods of Massachusetts, okay, you could get lost, turned around, whatever. But in the bayou where you could get stuck, slowed down and oh shit, there's an alligator. Like yeah. <laughs> totally different monster. And exactly. and I think it, it it's effective. Yeah. Uh, Patrick, go ahead. I was just going to say some uh, Louisiana movies <laughs> that I like are uh, the skeleton, skeleton key yes. uh, hatchet, Adam green's hatchet. And mm-hmm. um, oh, what's the other one? I'm going to cheat. I'm going to look online. Uh, <laughs> the other one, of course, my computer is acting slow. Oh, we'll come back to me. Um, it's always right. so effective in things. It's it's always its own character. It is. And it, it's something that it's like, if you want to talk about history, like, for for example, Florida, that whole place was a swamp. 
Yeah. Now it's not. But with <laughs> Louisiana, you can see, hey, this is what it looked like back then. Yeah. It's just fucking terrifying. And it has a lot of texture. Like the texture you get to write in a place like that is mm. like delicious. It's like the 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 air is so different. The sounds are so different. The feel of the of the ground is so different. It's just there's so much you can put in for texture. Yeah. And uh, on top of that, like with texture, you got, you know, all these different plants, all these different types of cultures that you're just not going to get up, up north yeah. where we're from. It's true. Is there anything right. that you want to take away? I mean, that you any takeaways that you have from your debut book that you just want to share and you're so happy and I'm sure grateful about? I still like still when I like pick up like the physical copy of the book I'm like this is my book like it's just so surreal like I I've been dreaming of that forever so holding on to it and seeing it in a store like makes me just like want to fall down I can't get over it anytime someone asks me to sign it like I have friends who will be like can you sign this book because I'm gonna give it to someone for Christmas and they're like I'm so sorry I'm asked like you know you don't have to and I'm like oh no I will literally sign every book i was like this is all i've ever wanted we'll sign all the books <laughs> i always say that to people i'm like oh give me the books to sign like, <laughs> no problem. i've wanted this my whole life i'm never turning away a book <laughs> so it's just been an amazing process and i loved working with zando was amazing they're like it's such like a one-on-one -on -one experience i felt like really taken care of there and they really listened to me and got me immediately like they just understand my writing. They understand that I like to be a little more flowery with a sentence than normal. Because <laughs> I, as soon as we you go into the editing process, you realize like, oh God, like someone's going to start chopping at my now. <laughs> and I'm such a control freak. Like I like my my big verbose sentences sometimes and they they worked with me on that and it paid off at the end. So it's nice to be able to work with people who understand you and respect your point of view. What for? Because we have a lot of readers and writers that listen to the show. What is it that you would talk about? Like, what what would you boost about Zando books? Zando books. I mean, everything about Zando is very um. You, like you, you really do feel like you're part of this like little family. Like it's not a clinical process to like put this book together. You really feel like you're involved with everything. I think they do the most, some of the most amazing covers come out of there. Like Xander was amazing at that. They're really, they're just like, you know, any book you get from a Zando from Zando publishing that you read is going to be what the author wanted. And they're going to be happy with that. That is exactly how they wanted their baby to come out because they listen and respect you, which is nice. And I've, you know, I've heard horror stories before. So I was really scared that I was like, oh no, are they going to like chop this book apart? And then it's not going to be what I want it to be at the end, or they're not going to understand me. They're going to think it's like weird. And like, I was like, because I actually got one of my rejections from a publisher was that the book was too brutal. <laughs> they couldn't, they didn't want really? to do it. Which I, I will say that rejection is like up on a piece of paper, like above my desk. That's because I was bizarre. like, I literally, I was like, that's like a compliment. Thank you for that. Yeah, I've so. seen horror <laughs> publishers that say they don't want, I'm not even kidding, like, they listed off, um, I don't think it was violence, but it was, it, it covered a, a range of things, that, like, no swearing or whatever. I, I get it, but, like, uh, the list they had, I'm just thinking, like, you don't uh -oh. want realistic stories. <laughs> yeah, like, uh -oh. What am I thinking? Even, yeah. even Christian books, like the Bible, kind of has a lot of bad stuff happening, yeah. you know? Real real life is scary, man. <laughs> like you can't sugarcoat. Absolutely. Brennan, I know you had a good question to follow up with this, so take it away. All right. Um actually I'm I'm so curious with you know, morbid being very, you know, especially the episodes you really enjoy, the older ones being very, very past tense. <laughs> uh writer nerd question. What inspired you to put this one into present tense? Is that just the way you write, or was there something about it that really kind of like drew you in? No, it's definitely, it was this one specifically. I started it out in a past tense. And when I got through, I think I, I got through like a couple of chapters that way. And then I was reading it and I was like, oh, like it's, I just feel like it's like missing something. 
and I switched it and it felt like it was more immediate. Like I felt like I, I was like, oh, I feel like I'm here now. Like I feel like this is happening because obviously present tense, it feels like it's happening right now. And I feel like that was important to me to like maintain that like feeling of unease throughout the book. Like I wanted somebody reading it to feel like, oh, like I, I'm feeling that hot air. I'm hearing that cicada because it's happening right now. Like I'm feeling this weird, overwhelming sense of dread. And I think that me personally, like I can read any tense and feel that I feel like if it's a if it's a good writer, then I feel that no matter what. Mm. But with this one, it was important to me that I stuck with that because the other way just was missing something to me. It immediately struck me as not not how I wanted it, not how I was hearing it in my head. Mm. Yeah, no, I like the, the immediacy and the basically immersiveness. Yeah. Um, and it, it's definitely, you know, it, it, it's a it's a picky tense, you know, like it can very it easily is. not work. But in, yeah. you know, a thriller, especially with short chapters that's jumping back and forth, you're with Ren, you're with Jeremy back and forth. I, I thought it was very effective in here. I was just very yeah. interested to hear, you know, kind of how you got to that point. Yeah. Now, I wonder what you can tell us about any potential sequel plans. So there will be more. Mm. <laughs> there will be a sequel um and you're gonna continue you're gonna get more you're gonna get more jeremy and you're gonna kind of dive deeper into how ren's dealing with the aftermath of how the first book ended oh, that's okay I, I thought i didn't know if you were gonna <laughs> I was talk like, i want to give you so much more but i can't <laughs> i was good that's a literal cliffhanger right there yeah <laughs> That's, that's a trailer. Yeah. <laughs> Brennan, follow up or were you going on? Uh, I do want to throw one more thing at okay. you. Now, um, there's definitely a school of thought that saying that a book or a story has a twist is in fact a spoiler. Uh, and the only reason I'm throwing it out there is because there's literally a uh, front, like inside-ish front yep. cover <laughs> blurb that, uh, you know, talks about uh, uh the big twists in the stories. So I wonder what kind of approaches you took to include a pretty sizable twist, but not make the story all about it. Essentially make the story function on its own where the twist is a nice little bonus, but it's not, it doesn't live or die on that hinge. That was, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because that was my idea going in was I was like, okay, that's what I don't want is I don't want like the, I don't want the twist to become the entire book and like, everything's hinging around you know like I didn't want that and so when I first went into writing it I was writing it kind of from like a little bit in the middle out like I I'm like a jumper arounder which is not always great at the end because then I'm like wait what happened here and like trying to connect things but I think that twist came very organically in the story so the story kind of brought itself there I had a little bit of a different road I was taking at first and this kind of hit me all of a sudden and I was like, ooh, if I can make that work. And I went back and kind of tinkered with some things. So I think it was it was really, I think the reason that it kind of worked out in my favor is because it wasn't my initial idea going in. It kind of just organically went that way. Like I I remember hearing authors talk about like writers talk about like listen to your characters and sometimes they'll take you places that you're not planning to go and I was always like that sounds like magical and delightful but like I don't think that's true like I remember being like I don't see that happening like I don't that's lovely <laughs> to think about but like oh lying. and it actually happens like, yeah. it really happened and I was like wow okay and yeah. they took me in that direction so I think that's the reason why it kind of luckily knock on wood worked <laughs> No, no, I definitely think it did. I would not have brought up that question if it didn't. <laughs> you would have been like, we're not going to talk about that. Yeah. What a twist, huh? Yeah, great. All right, moving on. <laughs> I got one question before we wrap up. And this is, I'm stealing this from Brennan, so I ain't taking your credit, buddy. But um, all right, you got kids, you got, you know, you got family, you got uh, a job. Um, How... Was it hard writing this book? Because I know obviously you, you're you're a writer, but like, was it hard in the sense of making time for it? Because writing books takes a fucking long time to do this. I'm sure. I'm sure it's just as like grueling, in the sense of like putting in the effort and putting your ass in the seat with your with the way your show is structured. I'm pretty sure 
that you're you're you probably got a lot of good practice from that but how how was it writing this book as far as that goes like putting in the time it was I always feel like I never have enough time like every day that goes by I'm like what happened like I never at the end of the day I'm like how did we get here like I didn't get any of the things I want to get done but to me it was I had to schedule writing time every day like I had to and even if it was like I came out of the writing time of like you know and it was a little like blurbs too of like just sit down for an hour like if you have an hour somewhere like just sit down for an hour see what you can get out Sometimes I would come back the next day and look at it and be like, that is trash. And I have no idea what I was writing. (laughs) But then sometimes I'd look at it and be like, oh, now I have another idea. (laughs) But I have to say, like, my husband is like, there needs to be like a national holiday after him because he's the one who constantly is like, he's like, I'm going to take the kids outside. Like, we're going to play outside. You sit in that room and you write for like an hour. Just like get, get your time in. Like he's constantly trying to help me make time for it because I'm also like, I have such mom guilt all the time. Like if I'm home, I want to be with the kids. Yeah. So <laughs> I have so much trouble like removing myself at any point to go just like be in a room and write for even an hour, mm. especially on weekends. I get like very like, oh, I should be spending all my time with you. So I also kind of like got in the habit of writing like really late at night mm. or like, when the kids would go to sleep. I still do that. Like we put the kids down at like eight, eight thirty. they're down and I'll sit down and finally start to write. And I also will wake up at like 4am before anybody gets up and try to like just bang out anything I can. Cause I do end up writing better in the morning. I found, mm, yeah, I think it's Same. really, just, it's weird. I didn't think that would be the case because I'm like foggy and out of it and I mm. love time, but weirdly more comes out in the morning. I feel like and better, more cohesive stuff. Well, so I think a- it's, finding those times to do it hmm. sorry for cutting you off oh no um, don't worry i just gotta say when i was i'm in almost in my mid 30s uh two months from now but i bring that up because in my early 20s when my wife and i when Sarah and i were um newer and very much so kidless i could write like for hours oh. at night whatever but now um morning same five o'clock before it's anyone's tired. up yeah nice it's like the calm before the storm yeah, <laughs> exactly but at night it's like finally that's i struggle at night i always try but i struggle because when they go down you just want to like sit down and just unplug for a minute and just absolutely all or do nothing <laughs> or just like try to talk to your your spouse for a minute without somebody interrupting you so you're like trying to get all your information downloaded to them like <laughs> <laughs> You're, I sorry. This this has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But Bluey is that a show in your guys' oh, house? I love Bluey. I fucking love it too. Lo- we literally watched that rain episode. That has like <laughs> yeah. we watched it the other night because we yeah. were just like was on the TV when we came down after putting the girls down, and we just sat and just watched it, and we were That's like, nice. this is so common. So we had a we had an Australian panel on, and one of them said that. Uh, it's just so un- like the parents are so so perfect, and I'm like, yeah, I think God someone else said it because I thought I was not a great parent with compared oh, to yeah, it. <laughs> unrealistic <laughs> expectations. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh yeah. So we don't want to take too much more of your time. We're just going to wrap up with final thoughts. Do you have, do you want to? So we don't leave with you saying, oh, "I wish I talked about this for your book." Is there anything that you want to mention before? And then that's not the final thought. So I'm kind of throwing you a trick question here i guess but do you <laughs> want to talk about anything we might have missed with your book I'm trying to think um i think it, no i think we covered most of the things that that i would have expected or wanted to okay um do you yeah. have any final okay. thoughts fun noise funny sounds that you want to make <laughs> uh final thoughts i'm trying to think if there's anything um this is totally unrelated but I want to know because I know you guys watch horror, and I always want to know: Do you like Hell House LLC? I haven't seen that I think yet. That was a good. The original. No, I'm in that same boat. That's so embarrassing. Neither one of us watch have seen the it. The original Hell House LLC, and tell me if you like it because I loved okay. it. And people are so divided on this subject, and I always want to know people's people either Homework, love it. Homework. I'm in. Yeah, the original one. 
Right into right. Yeah, compared I to our peers, we yeah. don't want we're, we're not as caught up because <laughs> gotta read all like, the books. Yeah, the books, <laughs> the podcast stuff. Trying to read the books. Yeah, I know I'm so behind on everything. I'm always watching things like 18 years later. <laughs> <laughs> um, Brennan, any final thoughts, sir? Uh, we're just we're so appreciative of your time. Um, just hanging out with us on a Monday. I guess it's technically <laughs> evening now. Um, and I'm so glad we could make this work. Uh, I hope that people will check out Morbid Podcast if they haven't already. Let's face it, they probably have, but <laughs> like the the few stragglers, let's get them on there. Um, and we'll check out The Butcher and the Wren. Thank you yeah. so much. And just like him, I appreciate it. And we got a real soft spot for our fellow New Englanders, so it means a lot. And um I'm throwing this out there. Your next book, you got an instant yes for us. And if that, you and Ash want to come back, because like, I I like your show. It's awesome. <laughs> Brennan does too. You know, it's just uh, it's a lot of fun. So throwing that out there. Um, and thank you for your time. Next episode is 220 with Nat Cassidy. We're gonna be talking about his book, The ne- uh, Nestlings. That's a tour night fire book. Pretty exciting stuff. Um, and as always, get me, Tristan Podcast. Thank you for picking up. Uh,